This episode of Fearless Rebel Radio is brought to you by You On Fire. You On Fire is the amazing 12-week online group coaching program that I run where we build up your worth from the ground up so that it's no longer hinging on the way that you look. It's got personalized coaching from me and incredible community support plus lifetime access. Get details on what's included in this program and sign up to be notified when doors open for the next cycle by going to summerinandin.com forward slash you on fire. I would love to have you in that program and in that group. This is Fearless Rebel Radio, a podcast about body positivity, self-worth, anti-dieting, and feminism. I am your host, Summer Inanin, a professionally trained coach specializing in body image, self-worth, and confidence, and the best-selling author of Body Image Remix. If you're ready to break free of societal standards and stop living behind the number on your scale, then you have come to the right place. Welcome to the show. This is episode 169, and I am interviewing Chrissy King, writer, speaker, and strength coach about the intersection of racism and fitness culture and body image, the importance of anti-racism work, and how to heal your relationship with fitness and more. We cover a lot in this episode. You can find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode at summerinandin.com forward slash 169. First, I want to give a shout out to Coolness3567, who left this awesome review. Really needed to hear this. Thank you so much. I have learned so much already, and you are helping me start my journey to get rid of being in a restrictive mindset and loving my body no matter my weight. I have been feeling really hopeless lately, but your podcasts make me feel like there is hope. Thank you so much for that. And yes, there is hope. There is hope and it is so much better on the other side. And Chrissy and I talk about that in this episode quite a bit. Before we get to that, if you haven't already done so, you can leave a review for this show. It helps others to find the show. It helps me to keep producing this show. And you can do that by going to iTunes, click to leave a review and leave a review. It's better than a rating. A rating is okay too, but a review is even better. Um, and you can also support the show by subscribing to it. You can subscribe via whatever platform you use, whether that is Spotify, Apple podcasts or Stitcher or YouTube, any of those places or other ones that I'm sure exist that I don't know about. And lastly, if you haven't already done so, definitely grab the free 10-day body confidence makeover at summerinandin.com forward slash freebies with 10 steps to take right now to feel better in your body. This episode is really timely. I am speaking to Chrissy King just days, like one or two days after the murder of George Floyd by a police officer. And we need to be having more of these discussions. And as someone who really preaches body positivity or body liberation or just self-acceptance, anti-racism work has to be a fundamental part of that. And Black Lives Matter has to be a huge part of that. We cannot overlook these conversations and we can't overlook the how as uh, a white person, if you're a white person, we are complicit in, in racism and upholding white supremacy in our culture. And if you are 
unsure about how this relates to any of the stuff I talk about in terms of diet culture or self-worth, then definitely, you know, keep listening to this episode. Read some of the books by people of color, such as Sonia Renee Taylor, um, such as the book Fearing the Black Body by Sabrina Strings. Uh, All of those are excellent resources. And, you know, it's growth that I've had to do myself because I just had my blinders on for so long. And it wasn't until the past, you know, recent few years that I was able to slowly start to see my blind spots and take those blinders off and try to do better. And we all need to do better as a culture to, um, to change this for the next generation. And so I'm really honored that Chrissy took the time to do this interview with me and also to, to speak about racism and how we can do better by doing anti-racism work and how we can approach that. So definitely listen to this one. It's really important. And we also cover uh, just a lot of stuff about how to heal your relationship with fitness and her story as well. So Chrissy King is a writer, speaker, strength coach, and self-proclaimed truth teller with a passion for intersectional feminism and creating a diverse and inclusive wellness industry. She has been featured in in Self, Shape, BuzzFeed, Muscle and Fitness, and Live Strong, among others. She empowers individuals to stop shrinking, start taking up space, and use their energy to create their specific magic in the world. When she's not serving her clients by empowering them to create stress-free and sustainable lifestyles and feel confident and empowered in their skin. She spends her time lifting all the weights, reading, traveling, and hanging out with friends and family. Chrissy's one of my favorite people to follow on Instagram because I just feel like she has this brilliant way of speaking about self-acceptance and and spreading the anti-diet culture message. And every time she writes something, I'm like, she just said that so well. <laughs> I wish I was that good of a writer. Um, anyway, so I'm, I'm really pumped to interview her, her here. Let's get started. Hi, Chrissy. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad to have you here. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so, so excited to chat with you today. I've been following your work for quite a while. I think you first came on my radar when you wrote a blog post about how, was it about how like fitness, just the fitness industry was very whitewashed or how people could be more inclusive, something along those lines. You might remember more than me. It was, it was a few years ago. And then I've been following you ever since and just really admire your work and really admire how you talk about body liberation and uh, everything around that. Thank you. Um, yeah, I did write it. I've written actually quite a few articles on that topic, but um, I think one of the first ones I wrote, which was a few years ago, um, was a blog titled "Is Fitness Only for Thin White Women," and that was the first time I really started talking about issues of like the lack of diversity and inclusion in fitness spaces. Yeah, and that was probably the article you're referring to. Yes, I think so. I'll link to that in the show notes, just because I think that it's really important. We're going to talk about some of that stuff today. But before we get into any of that stuff, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about you and and how you got into this this line of work? Absolutely. So um, I got into this line of work never... Well, that wasn't my intention. Um, So I grew up very into like books and writing and reading, not ever very athletic. I didn't work out. And so I really got into fitness as an adult. Um, and the only reason I ever joined a gym is because my younger sister had joined a gym and she wanted to lose weight. And I was like, what? You, you don't work out? And she's like, I didn't, I'm working out. You don't have to work out. 
And so I was like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to join the gym too. So I joined with her, had no interest actually in um, strength training. I had no interest in actually working out because I wanted to be healthy or feel good. I literally wanted to just be skinny. That was my only goal for joining the gym. But I ended up hiring a personal trainer, the same trainer as my little sister. And I remember our first session, I told her, I'm like, my goal is to be skinny, like make me skinny. That's all I care about. And she's like, okay, cool. Let's go over to this weight section. And I was like, what? I don't want to, I don't want to lift weights. You know, I'm like, let's go to the treadmill or let's, and she's like, well, I'm the trainer and like, just trust me. And she also, um, she was a very thin person. So I was like, well, I guess I did hire her. So I should trust her judgment. So anyways, we started training and I remember that first session was 30 minutes, but it felt like the longest, like 30 minutes of my life, just because I had, you know, I wasn't doing anything super strenuous. It's just that I hadn't used my body in that way in a long time. And it was mostly a lot of body weight stuff and some dumb well stuff. But I just remember how sore and miserable it was after that session and I hated it. And I was like, I should have never got a trainer. I should just went on the treadmill. Um, but I paid for like a group of um, sessions. So I kept training with her. And what actually ended up happening is I actually, over the course of a couple months, I started to actually like strength training little by little. And not so much because it got so much more fun yet, but because I started to see my body do things I couldn't do. Like, you know, like walking lunges, for example, were really, really hard the first session. And I started to see that my body was adapting and they were getting easier. And, um, I was like, just so many things were getting better that I never thought my body could do. And so I was like, oh, this is actually kind of cool. Like, uh, I see my body getting stronger and I actually kind of like this. Um, and then eventually because of her, she, um, moved to a different gym, which is a strength and conditioning gym her boyfriend owned. And I walked into that gym and I saw people, um, women powerlifting and doing barbell movements, um, squatting, deadlifting, benching. I had never seen women doing that in my life. And I also didn't think that was something I could do. Um, but eventually she stopped training there. I stayed there and, uh, he taught me all about powerlifting. And it was one of those things that as soon as I touched the barbell, I was like, "Whoa, this is magic. Like I love it so much. And my, my narrative growing up had always been that I'm just like a weak person. And so I didn't ever see my body being capable of doing those things. But I actually ended up being really, really strong. I mean, with time and practice, I got really, really strong. And for me, that was like, wow, um, strength is a skill just like any other skill that can be learned. Um, and so then I, I ended up going on to compete in powerlifting um, and deadlifted and spotted weight that like, you know, I never, ever, ever thought <laughs> I'd be able to do. Um, and the transformative power of powerlifting for me really helped me see that, um, you know, I can do hard things in the gym. And that means I can also do hard things in life. Um, and so that really transferred over into so many different areas of my life. And eventually then I started training in the gym space after work. I had a corporate job and I just trained on nights and weekends and then kind of went from there. And, you know, it's really interesting because I think back to weightlifting, powerlifting, strength training and how three, you know, five, six years later now, it's completely transformed, transformed the course of my life and what I'm doing as a career. Um, but also I, I found so much strength. And that I found in the gym strength has really transferred into so many areas of my life that's allowing me to find my power and to take up space in so many different arenas now. I feel uh, similar in that way. And I know it's not for everyone, but I do think it's one of those things that like, as you said, because you went in there with this notion of like, I want to be skinny, like I want to be smaller, like I want to be you know, the opposite of sort of what it gave you, it sounds like it, it helped you to like, you know, really take up more space and be stronger and be more 
feel like you could do more and feel more empowered and whatnot. And, um, that, I mean, that's personally like what I've always connected to and, and loved about it as well. So that's, that's, that's really great. And so did, like, were, did, you know, did you get skinny from, <laughs> I don't, you don't have to answer that, but like, how did that help you kind of heal your relationship with your body? Or like, were you still kind of fixated on like trying to be smaller while doing powerlifting? Absolutely. Yeah, no, I definitely, um, you know, this is a, you know, again, I'm telling this story very briefly. This happened over a course of years, obviously, but I did transform my body, transform. I even hate using those words around your body, but my body did change. I'm going to use the word transform. We're going to scratch that. I did change my body and my body did shrink significantly. And it was weird though with powerlifting. I had this desire to get stronger, but at the same time, I still wanted my body to get smaller and I know, you know, I counted macros for a long time um, and was very obsessive about my food, even after, you know, discovering what my body could do. And I think that helped a lot because I was like, well, my body is capable of all these cool things, but I still hadn't really fixed that relationship with wanting to shrink my body and be smaller and having a lot of my value tied to what I looked like, particularly as it pertained to being smaller. So that was still an ongoing struggle for me while powerlifting. Um, and I think particularly when I was competing because there's weight classes and yes. I, I'm seven, you know, I'm almost six feet tall. And so, um, I'm naturally going to weigh more. I'm a, like, I'm a, a larger person in general. And it was like always trying to weigh in at different weight classes and like, you know, not wanting to go up to another weight class because in my mind being that weight just seemed like too much, but also I was getting muscle and I was like the leanest I had been as an adult, but I was still like teetering on the line of that weight class. Um, and so it was a lot of stress for me for a very long time. And I think what finally changed for me is because I was just, I got so like sick of my own shit, to be honest, I was miserable. And it was this weird thing where I was getting so much affirmation for how my body looked. I mean, like strangers, like people all the time, which was like, oh my God, you look so great. And like I said, I was as lean as I'd ever been as an adult, but I was like the most obsessive I'd ever been about as an adult about my body as well. I think what was like the breaking point for me is I went on a, a family um, get together for a weekend trip with uh, my in-laws at the time, I was married at the time. And I was so obsessed about everything that I ate that I, I brought all my food for the weekend with me. I would not like the sense of control I had when I was eating. And so I went to this restaurant and I told everybody I was going to stay in the car because I was going to eat my own food that had been sitting in the car all day because I didn't want to eat what was in the restaurant. I was going to join them after. And I didn't tell, I just told my, my husband at the time that, and then I stayed in the car. And of course, his family's like, why is she staying in the car? We're going to eat. And so he explained it to them. And they were like really generous in that they asked the restaurant if I could bring my food in and the restaurant obliged. But then I was just like, I had this moment of like, this is really, really sad. You know, like I'm sitting here eating food that's been, you know, in my Tupperware container all day at a restaurant. Everybody's enjoying food and they're having a great time. And I'm feeling like so miserable. And so that was when I was just like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. And I need to just, I need to fix this. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, that's it. I feel like it's one of those, it's, it's such a familiar story. And especially as it relates to like people who do this work now, who, you know, like kind of went through like that disordered phase and realized like you're, you kind of have the perfect body quote unquote, but you're miserable and you hate it and you, your value is completely connected to it. So what helped you to, to like break free from that, like break free from that food obsession and to, you know, cultivate a sense of acceptance with the size that your body was meant to be at. Absolutely. Uh, so that weekend was a major 
breaking point for me. And after that weekend, I just decided I wasn't tracking macros anymore, which um, was really scary for me, right? Because if you've been so, if you're so used to having that sense of control and then deciding to let go was really, really scary. But also on the flip side, when you've been cra- tracking macros for years, you kind of like can calculate in your head what you're eating anyways. Yes. Um, but it was still like the decision to like not count anymore. And, you know, slowly I was able to make adjustments like, okay, I'm going to drink creamer in my coffee that's not sugar free, which is like a small thing, right? But like, it's still like, oh, okay, I did that and I'm okay. And so just like slowly making adjustments and recognizing that like nothing bad has happened. I'm still just fine. And just little by little allowed me to like kind of get back to a normal place with food and then to start to deal with my own body image uh, stuff and just really make some breakthroughs in that regard. And yes, you know, I did gain body fat and also I'm like, wow, this is okay. (laughs) It's not a big deal. This is fine. And so, you know, even though my body changed and I wasn't as lean as I was, I eventually was like back to a place where I felt really good about living, right? Like I could, you know, have experiences with friends. I could go out to dinner. I could live a full life without being stressed about every single moment about what I was eating. And the interesting thing is that even though my body, you know, I did gain some body fat, I was obsessing less about what I looked like, right? I didn't care anymore. I wasn't, every moment wasn't like spent thinking about what I was going to look like. And this past fall, um, I had this moment and I wrote about this actually, I had this moment when I was just, um, I recognized like how far I had come in my relationship with my body and food. I was um, in Spain traveling with some people and, and actually most of the people in this group of women I didn't know. I'd only known one of them prior to the trip. There were seven of us. And the old me would have one been stressed out about and meeting all these people that I don't know. Are they going to judge me for how I look? And also the old me would have been like, oh my gosh, I'm going to Spain for eight days. I'm not going to have any control over what I eat. What's going to happen? But I was thinking that I had this moment where I was like eating, you know, I was going to this beautiful cafe every morning. I was getting these chocolate croissants and we're just eating so many great things and having so much fun. And I was like, wow, this is what freedom and liberation looks like because I can go somewhere. I can eat food. I can enjoy it. I don't, I'm not thinking about if I'm going to gain weight. I'm not thinking about the fact that I'm not getting enough protein while I'm here. I'm not even the least bit concerned about what someone thinks about what I look like. And I was like, oh, wow, this is what, this is what liberation looks like. And I can look back on this trip and I don't have, I didn't rob any of the experiences because I wasn't robbed of any experiences because I was stressing about things that don't matter. I look back on that trip and I think about all the laughs we had and how many memories we created and the great meals we shared and the amazing wine we tasted. Um, and those are the kind of memories that I want to recreate because life is short. Right. And as far as I know, we get to do this one time and I want to live it to the fullest. Yeah. So important. Right. And it's like, that's, that's what living is all about is to, be present and enjoying experiences. And it's such a small life when you're fixated on your body and micromanaging food. It's such a small life. It really, really is. And and for me, like I know I recognize now, not only is it a small life, but like all of your energy goes to thinking about, at least for me, all of my energy went to when am I going to work out? What am I eating? And is my, what is my body looking like? I didn't have any energy left over to create like magical things in the world because I I couldn't think of anything else. Yeah. You talked about like healing your relationship with your body. And I'm curious to know if you could speak to like the, the influence of racism on your body image. And like, I would imagine, especially being in powerlifting, cause I feel like that's really white, at least where I live and just how you see that impacting, you know, like the body image of, of women in color in general. And I know you can't speak for everyone, obviously. 
Yeah, yeah, I'll speak to my personal experience. So I think powerlifting now is a lot more diverse than they used to be. There's like really great pages now. It's just the powerlifting one run by uh, here in New York named Shireen, um, which is highlighting like black women and other women of color in powerlifting. But when I started powerlifting years ago, it was super white. And I would be like, I was for sure the only black woman competing, right? And there might be like a couple other people of color in the meet, but I was definitely the only black woman and usually the only woman of color competing. So it's definitely super, super white back then. I think it's a little bit more diverse now. That's good. Yeah, no, it is good. But I think um, overall, you know, it's, it's interesting because I, I think there's a lot of conversation about like, why is race a part of everything or like, why is that always a part of the conversation? And for me, it's because it is a part, it is a part of everything, right? And so it pertains particularly to body image um, and health and wellness in general. Mainstream white, mainstream fitness is still very white, white presenting and racism in the fitness space is a very real thing. And, and not only just that, how we perceive bodies, how we perceive what value, bodies are important, how we perceive what bodies are desirable are highly impacted by race. And, you know, there's a, a really great book called Fearing the Black Body. Yes. Yeah. And so it talks about the implications of race. It talks about the implications of race on body image um, and how we see ourselves. And so for me, particularly, I think it's so important that I talk about the need for more diversity and inclusion in fitness because racism affects people's health. Um, and there's lots of also uh, studies on how racism just like being the victim of racism leads to higher instances of heart disease and diabetes and high blood pressure. And so being a victim or being, not even being a victim, but just being in a racist society has a negative impact on physical health as well as mental health. Um, and so it's a huge part of the conversation about how, as a black woman, how I see myself in this world, how I see myself in the fitness space. I don't think that we can separate the two. And so a lot of times when things happen in the world and people are like, in the wellness space and fitness space, I'm like, yo, if you're helping people be healthy and fit and strong, you have to talk about racism. You have to talk about the things that are happening. If you care about people's health, then we have to be talking. We, we can't ignore social injustice because you're like, that doesn't pertain to fitness. It 100% pertains to fitness. And it 100% pertains to people's ability to feel safe in their bodies. Yes. Yes. Otherwise, it's just done through a privileged vacuum. Absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. And I think that the fitness industry in general, you know, we have issues with privilege, accessibility, all of those things. Um, and so I think all of us in the, in the fitness space need to be doing a better job at, for one, understanding our own biases and privilege. Because I think if you don't understand your own biases, it's really hard to help other people who don't look like you. Um, and we all have to be questioning our biases, whether it's about race, it's about fat phobia, whether it's about gender, all of those things are important. And I think it's so important for um, practitioners to be examining your own bias. And, you know, examining your bias is uncomfortable sometimes because you find things that you don't necessarily like. That doesn't matter who you are. All of us have biases, myself included as a black woman, right? But we have to start to face those things that are uncomfortable so that we can overcome them, so we can adjust, so we can show up better in these spaces. Yeah. And so, like, do, do you feel like it's evolving at all? You know, I feel like there are times where I feel like it's evolving. Um, and then there are times where I'm like, I don't know. So and I say both because I think the conversation of diversity and inclusion is becoming more prevalent in fitness spaces. But unfortunately, I think sometimes conversation is just conversation and not actually um, doing the thing. 
And I know I can speak to myself. I've unfortunately been in a lot of situations. People have asked me to like maybe come to their event and talk about certain things or, and my, you know, my answer is always like, sure. However, like if something happens, it's inappropriate. If this, if you're missing the market the same way, I'm going to be honest with you. That's the only way I'm willing to be involved with this project. And sometimes people are really open to the feedback and other times it doesn't go so well because again, when, you know, when you're faced, when someone give, is giving you feedback that doesn't feel good, people's natural instinct is to be defensive. And so that happens a lot. And so unfortunately, I've been in a lot of situations where I've been asked to do that. And then the, I've been met with a lot of white just, tears. Yeah, like white tears. Well, I've been met with a lot of white tears and, and not even owning up to like, not even understanding what I'm saying because, because their defensiveness has come up now. Now they're like dealing with their own stuff and instead of setting that aside and being like, I need to process that some other time. Let me listen to this feedback. So I think that's been the challenge. Um, and then, you know, I, it, it gets a little frustrating for me sometimes, you know, today when we're recording this episode, there's a lot of things happening around police brutality in this country. And so, you know, there's a lot of, in the last three, two, two weeks, like three major things have happened that have involved police brutality or two involving police brutality. One is just brutality by citizens. But, and so what I see happening in fitness is I, I see people feeling like they want to acknowledge what's happening. And so I appreciate that. But I think, you know, it's hard because I also don't see, you know, like sharing posts are really, that's helpful. That's really great. I think it's a great place to start. But I, I, for me, what's more important than just sharing posts is I need to see white people taking a little bit more action than just sharing posts. Because when we think about systems of white supremacy and racism in this country, yes, people of color, we've been talking about it forever. We will talk about it forever. But when it comes down to actually how is this going to fix, I, I firmly believe that it's white people's problem to fix and take ownership of. And so I just like to see more action than what I see sometimes. And again, it's a very emotional time, right? Because so much of it is happening. And so I think everybody's trying to do their best. But I just, you know, it can be frustrating sometimes. But I, I am at least happy to see that people in the fitness industry are starting to at least acknowledge that things are happening more. Where in the past, I felt like it was just complete silence. That's a step in the right direction. Um, but I, I, obviously, I think there's a lot more work to be done. Yeah, there's still a lot of silence that I notice from particular people with large platforms that say they truly care about health and wellness. Right. Um, and one area that I am particularly frustrated with this week, and I, I may talk about this at some point, I don't really know. It depends on my own emotional bandwidth. I see a lot of people within the larger body, positive, body positivity community with large followings who are not talking about this. And for me, you know, when we're talking about body positivity, for one, that was founded for people on the margins, right, on the outside. And although it has been in a lot of way co-opted by thinner body white women, that was never the point of the movement. And so when we're talking about a space like that, if we're not talking about injustices of people and black and brown bodies um, and, and just marginalized identities, then you are completely missing the mark of body positivity. And I find that infuriating. Yeah. I wrote something that said like, we need to like, if you're not as, like if you're like you're more outraged about like a diet that you don't like than you are about this or you're more riled up about sharing cellulite than like speaking about this like it's a problem and i'm totally complicit in that like i'm not saying i'm perfect there at all from like i'm always trying trying to learn but it's we definitely need more voices speaking up right and i think what you just said about the cellulite right like you know we feel com- not we but people 
feel comfortable addressing cellulite, right, as a or diets, because knowing others are going to be ruffled by that. But you know, when we start talking about larger systematic issues, then you know there's a potential that people aren't going to agree with you. But like again, if if you're more upset about the cellulite, there's a problem here. And so I think we just have to reexamine the work we're doing and what is our actual purpose and who are we actually attempting to serve. Yeah, and uh, like when you talk about the action, like you know, some things that I sort of think is like you know actively doing anti-racist work. So for example, like investing in courses by people of color on anti-racism work, like donating to causes, actively doing it in your everyday life. So, you know, speaking up when you see it and things like that. Like, are there other actions that you can think of that would be helpful? I mean, I think the things you just listed are a really great starting point. I think people need to be like taking someone's course to actively learn. Because again, I think we start talking about racism. People think of racism as like, oh, they use the N-word. People, you think of racism as like they are a member of the KKK, right? These very overt things. Yes, those things are overt and they're problems, but it, it's the smaller things that happen every day that are just as dangerous, if not more dangerous. Because listen, if someone tells me they're in the KKK, if I know someone's in the KKK, I, I actually, that's cool. Now I know where you stand and I know to stay away from you. But it, it's, it's the people like the woman who just called the police on the man in Central Park because he asked her to keep his dog or to keep her dog on a leash, right? You know, when you actually start going, I, I read an article about this, and like, this is a woman who considered herself to be a liberal, right? This is a woman who, who donated to like causes that support black people. So in her mind, she's not racist, but clearly she's racist, right? And so I think it's so important to be investing in courses that are probably very uncomfortable, that are gonna bring up some stuff for you that you don't like, so that you can start to see how racism is existing in your life in ways you don't understand because it's not just those overt things, right? And so everyone should do that. And I like really think it's important to take those courses from black women or people of color, um, not from other white people. And I think it's important to recognize that it is going to be wildly uncomfortable for you that you are going to be faced with things that you don't like to see, but it is 100% necessary. So that's great. I also, again, like you said, donating to like Black Lives Matter, giving your money to, and not even just donating to like causes like Black Lives Matter, but like just supporting black and brown business in general, right? Like whether it be in the fitness space or whether it be like local restaurants, like investing in black and brown communities, I think is really important. And what you just said, I think about, you know, I think sometimes people think that in order to make a difference, they have to have some huge platform or they have to like make some grandiose statement on their social media. And I actually, I don't think that's the most important thing. I think the most important thing is having the conversations with the people that are closest to you, which for the record is way harder than making a social media post. Yes. Your mom or your dad or your brother or your significant other about the racist things that they're saying or doing, whether they recognize it or not, is wildly vastly more uncomfortable than like making a post on social media because also what happens on social media is you get praise and accolades from other white people saying, good job, I'm so happy you spoke out about this, right? Yes, you may have some backlash, but overall, people are like, yes, thank you for taking a stand. When you have to talk to your uncle or your cousin or your best friend, that's not conversation way more complicated. However, it makes way more of a difference. Yeah, and talking to your kids about it too. So like a, a friend of mine was sharing how she, you know, I think her sons are like, I don't know, eight and 10 or something, just how she sat down and talked to them about everything that's going on. And like that, you know, we need to be doing that 
too, as a, as a parent, I mean, my son's only 20 months, so he understands garbage cans. <laughs> That's like the level of his understanding. No, I'm kidding. But you know, like things like that need to, need to be happening too. Like just because we think they're innocent, like doesn't mean that we can't be sharing that. Like we need to tell them the realities of the world and where that, you know, we stand in our role in it. Yeah, I think that's really important because I think a lot of times I've, I've heard people say, like, well, they're not really old enough for that. And I'm like, uh, sure they are. Like, kids can understand for what, whatever we explain to them. And also, I think that, of course, we need to wait till they're competent to understand what we're talking about. But the younger we start having these conversations with children, the better. And I don't think it's anything that they need to, you know, America has this weird thing where we want to, like, run from our history or we don't want to tell the true history or, like, uh, you know, we don't want to talk about slavery for what it actually was. And I don't, I actually do know why I want to do that. Cause like, it's, it's easier to deny the things that the, like how this country was actually founded than to talk about it. But it is really, really important to have honest conversations with, with all of our children about race and gender and all of these things at an early age. And the flip side of this is like, you know, it's really interesting. People say like, I, I don't want to burden my children with that too young. And it's like, all right, cool. But like black children, like that's a conversation you have to have when they're young because, you know, like the world is a real place. It's going to happen regardless. And so I don't think there's ever a time at which you can't start having those conversations about the inequality in this country, in this world and raising children that will be change makers and be different children in this place when they become, you know, adults and young adults. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for sharing all of that. I, appre- I really appreciate this conversation. And obviously it's like really timely right now. And yeah, just very frustrating. Very, very frustrating. Is there anything else that you want to add on that before we switch gears? Because I, I would like to talk to you about the Body Liberation Project as well. I mean, I could talk about this all day. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. It's a weird segue. <laughs> I do. I'm, I'm glad we had the space to have this conversation. Um, but yeah, no, we, we can switch gears now. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I, uh, yeah, I mean, talk, well, talk to me about like, cause you have like hashtag body liberation project. Talk to me about like where that came from. And then I'd love you to share just some practices that, that you have or, or that you share with clients to help them cultivate a sense of, of self-acceptance. Yeah, I started talking about body liberation because for me, when I think about I think about, you know, body acceptance, I think about mm, body positivity, I think about all these things. I I think about the fact that, yes, I think accepting our bodies is important. I think that is a good first step, right? Like, you're not going to go from hating everything in your body to loving everything in your body. However, I do think that acceptance of yourself is just a first step, right? And when I think of liberation, I think of total freedom, right? So, for me, liberation is a step past even self-love. And I know, you know, in this space sometimes we talk about, you know, loving your body or loving yourself is maybe like pie in the sky or that's too much to ask of ourselves. And, and, and I get that, right? Because at a certain point that was too much of myself to ask. I couldn't think of that. I couldn't fathom that yet. But I so wholeheartedly believe that all of us are so worthy and so deserving of not even just accepting ourselves, but actually falling in love with ourselves and then and then you know once we fall in love with ourselves finding true liberation and freedom in our bodies and in ourselves and I I said this somewhere yesterday I can't even remember maybe it was on Twitter and I was just like loving yourself wholeheartedly is the greatest love story of all 
And I so want that for people. And I so want women, you know, anyone, but I always talk about women and people identify as women because I, that's who I feel like I speak to, but really to get to a place of true love and appreciation and gratitude for themselves. Um, and I think so often we look for validation from other people and relationships or all these other things. And I just want us all to come back to back to home, back to ourselves, a place where we find that joy and love within ourselves. And then we can share that with someone else, not that we're looking to someone else to give that to us. Yeah. And so what, what practices have helped you or which ones do you feel like are most important there? I think there's a lot of things. Um, again, I think always unlearning is a big part of it because none of us came out of our mother's wounds hating ourselves, right? Learn that thing. We learn those practices. We learn those things from the world. We learned our ideas about what our bodies are supposed to look like, our ideas about what our bodies are supposed to do. We learn those things from the world. And so I think a really a, a good practice for all of us is to start to question things with curiosity, not with contempt or judgment, but with compassion and curiosity. Meaning, like, if I look in the mirror and I'm like, oh, my God, I hate the way my arms look, you know, just stop that thought and be like, okay, let's get compassionate and curious about this thought. What is wrong? What don't I like about my arms? What, who, what is the idea that something's wrong with them? And just to really start to question the things that we believe, because I think when we keep questioning ourselves and then, you know, maybe you say, I don't, they're too big, but why are they too big? And we just keep taking these steps. I think a lot of times we can start to uncover that a lot of the things that we hold to be true, they aren't our beliefs at all. Those are beliefs that have been passed on to us. And again, unlearning is also really uncomfortable in any facet of our lives. Because then when you start to unlearn things and you recognize that, like, maybe I don't believe this, um, it can be a little disconcerting, right? Because you're like, well, what do I believe? Who am I? Yes. <laughs> you know, I don't know anymore. Um, but I do think that's an important part of the process. And then also, I, I think for me, I, I take a lot of, like, my clients through a lot of journaling activities that can, for a variety of different things. But I think all of it is to start to really unpack. We have a lot of unpacking to do about bodies about it's not just about bat, bodies I think it's even deeper than that I think we have to start to recognize our own fat phobia internalized fat phobia right what do we think about fat bodies what do we think about larger bodies what are, are we actually you know is it that we don't you know what comes to a relationship with food and exercise right like is that all based on us just running from fatness and so again so many of these things can be wildly uncomfortable but they we have to face the uncomfortable things to get to the other side there, there's no other way you have to go through the middle, right? And through the middle can be really muddy and can be really hard and can be really um, frustrating, but that's the only way. Yeah, 100%. Did you feel like with yourself, because I, I feel like this is really common with people in particular who kind of wet, like were heavily into like fitness in some, in some way, shape or form or dieting that like that was, that was part of their identity. So kind of coming out the other side, you almost had to like rediscover who you are. Was that, was that part of your process? Oh, absolutely. I, I definitely feel that way. And also, not only that, but also what I noticed about myself and I noticed about a lot of my clients is that the thing with dieting and trying to maintain your body and shrinking your body is that it feels like something you can control, right? So mm -hmm. for me, there were a lot of other things in my life that I didn't want to deal with because they just seemed too difficult to deal with. But I could, I could easily control this part of my life. So it was for me, it was just like almost like a, a mask of all the other issues that were going on underneath the surface. So once I kind of dealt with that stuff, I was like, oh, okay. So here's the real stuff that I have to deal with. 
here are the real things that I need to fix. And those things were much more scarier than just trying to maintain my body. And so I think it becomes like a focal point. That's something easy to deal with when you don't want to really deal with you. Either you don't want to, or you don't feel prepared to, or don't feel like you can deal with some of the larger things under the surface. Yes, exactly. It's like peeling back all these layers of an onion, which I think is why it's sometimes safer for people to stay where they are. Like it feels safer. It feels more comfortable to stay in the body discomfort than it does to kind of go to the scary unknown. Absolutely. 100%. But it's so worth it when you do. <laughs> so worth it, right? And, and you're exactly right. It's the analogy of peeling an onion and the layers of an onion, right? And I mean, listen, I don't have enough time to go through every story today. But once I started peeling that layer, wow, I found a lot of stuff, right? It led me to leave my corporate job that I, you know, was making six figures at. It led me to leave my marriage. I had been in for 10 years. And all of those things are really, really scary. Um, but ultimately, they were the right decisions for me. But I could have just never dealt with that stuff. And it would have felt more, it would have felt more comfortable at the time. But in the long run, I would have been, you know, miserable in a lot of ways. And that's a good example of why like actions of, of self-love aren't always like rainbows and, and happiness. It's like, it's, it's like making tough decisions like that to honor yourself and who you are, but it's like super uncomfortable to do. Yes. I wrote a post about this at one point. It wasn't about self-love, but it was about self-care and that we talk about self-care as in like bubble baths and, you know, yeah. like, you know massages and sort of things. And like, yes, that's true. But also self-care is making difficult decisions that feel really painful. Self-care involves like crying into a pillow for, you know, like it involves really difficult things too. It's not just like the pretty sunshine, the rainbows and like pampering, like true self-care and true self-love involves the, the nitty gritty involves making difficult decisions. And it is not always um, like pretty flowers and rainbows and sunshine. Yes, yes, totally. As we get close to kind of like wrapping it up here, I'm just curious to know, like, because you are, you know, still really involved in, in fitness, and you've sort of gone from like, approaching it from more of, you know, like a weight focused place, to like a place where it's just something you do. And because you really enjoy it. You know, how, what's your advice for people who are trying to change their relationship with fitness and trying to make that shift, but like, they don't know, they don't know how to do that. Yeah, that's hard. It's a, it's a difficult, um, it's really difficult because when I was like really stuck in that place, um, I would not miss the workout session. I was in the gym six days a week. Like I would, I'd miss out on life and friends and family before I missed out on the gym. Right. It was like something I did every single day. I was very committed to it. Um, and so I think, you know, a first step, I, I think everybody, we should evaluate our relationship with working out and with fitness. Am I doing this because I feel great when I exercise? Am I doing this because I love moving my body? Am I doing this because it makes, I like being strong or am I doing this because I feel guilty if I don't, if I do this, if I'm doing this because I feel like I need to do this in order to eat something that I want to eat. Am I doing this because I feel like I have to do it and really start to listen to also what our body likes and what our body enjoys. And that can mean like, you know, there's days where you wake up and your body is tired and does not want to work out. Like, can I start to honor that? Can I honor my body and listen? Like maybe my body needs rest today, not another intense workout. And so, you know, I think a lot of us have lost our, our ability to trust ourselves with food and exercise, right? Cause we've been so programmed We've worked with coaches who told us what to do 
told us what to eat and we don't even know how to trust our own bodies, but our bodies are so intuitive. And I just think as a first step, start to listen to yourself, listen to your body, listen to what your body is actually craving and, and be like, it's okay if I don't go to the gym today, like nothing's going to happen. That's an okay thing to do. And if you, and if you can't do that yet, like that feels too difficult, then just like maybe take it back one notch. Like if you're working out five days a week, like let's try working out four days a week and see how that goes. And it can just be small things or instead of working out for, you know, an hour and a half, can I just work out for 45 minutes and see how that feels? And so I think for everybody, that's going to be really different because some people are really comfortable. I mean, I stopped tracking macros cold turkey. Some people that would freak them out. Right. So I think you have to listen to what feels comfortable for yourself. But if it's even a small incremental change, then start with a small incremental change and, and work from there. Yeah, that's great advice. Thank you for that. So we covered so much here and I feel like we could go on. I just, I love the way that you speak to these things. I'm a huge, like every time you write a post, I'm like, you just have such a great way of articulating these things. So I really appreciate the work that you're doing. Where can people find more of you? Absolutely. Well, thank you first off for the kind words. I really appreciate that. And also people can find me um, on Instagram at I am Chrissy King. I'm on there the most, but I'm also on Twitter, the same thing. I am Chrissy King. Um, and my website is ChrissyKing.com. Great. So. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. I really, really enjoyed our conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you. I loved it as well. And thank you so much for letting me talk about so many things openly freely. Yeah. Thank you, Chrissy. Rock on. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did and learned a lot. And if, you know, there were parts of it that made you uncomfortable, like just sit in that discomfort and explore it and let that be fuel for change because it, you know, we want to be on the right side of history here. It's so important to do that. So you can check out the links and resources mentioned at summerinandin.com forward slash 169. And I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to this all the way through. Talk to you next time. Rock on. I'm Summer Inanin, and I want to thank you for listening today. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Summer Inanin. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this show. I would be so grateful. Until next time, rock on. Rock on.